Well, good morning. It really is a joy and uh, a privilege to be able to share something from God's Word. I have never, over the years of um, uh, preaching and teaching, ever taken for granted the awesome privilege, but also the awesome responsibility of seeking to share God's Word with God's people. I'd like to read to you from Romans chapter 8, and uh, we're going to begin with a very familiar verse, Romans 8, verse 28, and then read some of the passage that uh, Pastor Andy read to us at the beginning. Romans 8 and 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I could just finish there and that would be great, wouldn't it? I won't, but uh, that would be great. You know, Christians living in the first century had it really hard. And the Christians living in Rome at the very epicenter of the Roman Empire, under the Emperor Nero, life was particularly tough. Paul refers just a few verses earlier in the passage we read to our present sufferings. In actual fact, if uh, we record the timings right, just a few years after the church in Rome received this letter from Paul, a great persecution broke out against Christians in Rome. And Emperor Nero inflicted the most gruesome atrocities upon those Christians. And some of those most probably who heard this letter read the very first time would go on to pay a very big price for their allegiance to Jesus Christ. We here in the West today enjoy relative freedom in our following after Jesus. But it's important for us to remember that most probably, globally speaking, we are in the minority. Open Doors, the ministry that encourages prayer for the suffering church, 
estimates that over 300 believers on average die for their faith each and every month. And over 200 million believers in over 60 nations are robbed of their fundamental human rights solely on the basis of their faith in Jesus Christ. I share this with you this morning because some of the great teaching in the passage that I've read to you has been the source of much debate over the centuries. And for some Christians, they have been polarized by these truths. Arguments about can a Christian lose their salvation? Arguments about the sovereignty of God and human free will. And yet, so often, those arguments take place in the relative safety and security of Bible college classrooms. I want to remind you, these words were written to believers living in a dangerous time and in uncertainty. For some of them, they were facing some challenging times for their faith in Jesus. There was so much uncertainty, and yet the Apostle Paul teaches and sends this letter in order to encourage them, to strengthen them, and to assure them. Not simply so that they might have some theological conundrum. <laughs> Not simply so that they might argue and debate. So much was uncertain within their lives. He wanted them to be certain of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He wanted them to be certain and convinced that over and above Emperor Nero, God was on his throne. And God was working out his purposes. He wanted them to know that the future, their future, and the future of every believer ultimately is a bright future. We have a glorious future in Christ Jesus, and yet we are not promised an easy journey to that future. It's as if Paul looks back to eternity past, and I find this blows my mind. And he says, your salvation began with God before the creation of the world. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the likeness of his son. He says something similar in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. For he says there, for God chose us in him, in Christ, to be faultless before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. I don't know about you, I can't get my head around that. And yet I do not want to reduce these incredible truths to something my human and rational and finite little mind can comprehend. People say, well, how do you work it out that God chose us? And yet we know that uh, from Peter, God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. How does it work it out? I don't have to work it out, praise God. Because I realize that God is so much bigger than my human brain. On Thursday in the uh, Bible study in the Word and Spirit course, we were talking about the fact that Jesus is fully God and yet fully man. I've got to tell you, I cannot get my head around that, but I love it. And I, I know the reason I can't get my head around it is because God is so much bigger. And I praise God today that I worship a God, and I'm sure you too praise him, that is so much bigger than our finite minds. You know, these great doctrines of God choosing are doctrines that are bigger than our minds. But they are doctrines that remind us that our salvation begins with God. They are doctrines that give all the glory to God and remove any opportunity for you and I to take any credit for our salvation. 
We stand and we gaze at God and we say to you, be all the glory. These great doctrines of the sovereignty of God, of the providence of God, that God is working behind the scenes, of his foreknowledge, of predestination, of our ultimate glorification that speaks of the time when we see Jesus face to face and we are fully transformed into his likeness where every trace of sin is eradicated and we receive a body like unto his glorious body. I tell you, for some of these believers, hearing these words for the first time would have their physical bodies burned in Nero's garden parties. Some of them would have their bodies ripped apart by wild animals. And yet Paul says, I want you to look beyond. There is coming a day when you will have a new body like unto his glorious body. You will enjoy the presence of God and you will experience a dimension of his presence beyond anything you could dream about in this life. You see, the language that Paul uses is languages of, language of certainty. I love the fact that when he says that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined and those he predestined, he also called and those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. You say, Paul, I think you've got the tense wrong. Glorification of the believer takes place when we see Jesus. And yet Paul is so certain that God will finish what he has started in our lives, that he is able to use the past tense. At a time for these believers of great uncertainty, Paul wanted them to be certain of the love of Christ. He wanted them to be able to rest in the unbreakable love of God. Hallelujah. He wanted them not to be relying on their effort, but to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I believe God speaks the same word of assurance to you and I today. You know, these great doctrines are doctrines that will strengthen us. They are doctrines that will enable us to face some of the greatest challenges that we could ever face in this life. They're doctrines that enable us to face our own weakness and even our own mortality with eternal hope. Don't ask me to explain them fully, I cannot. But you see, at the same time as I can revel and rejoice in the fact that God chose me before the creation of the world, I can look out on a world and say, God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. We come to the verse, there's two verses that I want to focus on this morning, verse 28 and verse 29, and probably Romans 8, 28, for we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Probably one of the best known verses in the New Testament. And as with all such verses, there is a real danger that they can become a cliche rather than a conviction. Essentially what Paul is saying here and what the Holy Spirit inspired him to say is that God is on the throne no matter what life looks like. You know the fact is that essentially nothing touches our lives as Christians and this is a message for Christians this morning. If you're not a Christian I want to tell you you can be a Christian. As you receive Jesus Christ into your life, as you repent of your sin, trust him for your salvation, this can be true of you. But Paul is writing to Christians and he's saying nothing can touch your life. That ultimately 
is not allowed by God the Father. Doesn't mean that he is the initiator of all of those things. But somehow, in some miraculous, remarkable way, God is able to take everything that we go through and use it for his ultimate glory and our ultimate good. I think of the story of Joseph, and time doesn't permit to go into it, but some of you will be familiar with the story of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis. He was a a young man destined for a place of great influence and great authority in the nation of Egypt. God had prepared him to be the right man in the right place at the right time, at a crucial time in Egypt's history and a crucial time in the history of the embryonic nation of Israel. And yet when you follow Joseph's journey, he was on the receiving end of some terrible stuff. Extreme sibling rivalry, the hatred of his brothers, the injustices, the cruelty of the slave traders, and uh, the lustful intentions of another man's wife. And he went through all sorts of stuff. And we have to say today, God is not the initiator of that. But God took everything that was thrown against Joseph and he used it to shape Joseph into the man that he wanted him to be and to thrust him into the place that God had ordained him to be. Friends, today, God is not the initiator of some of the bad stuff that maybe is going on in your life. And maybe you're going through a tough time right now. But I want to tell you that God has the ability to use that for your good and his eternal glory. Paul says, we know. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We know, Paul says. When Paul writes to the believers at Corinth, and boy, that was a messy church. Not messy church as we know it today, uh, but it was full of naughty behavior and sin and all kinds of division and things. And, And Paul is writing to that church, and repeatedly he asked the question, do you not know? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And Paul infers that their bad behavior was the result of ignorance of truth. That if they really were convinced about certain biblical truths, their behavior would change. It seems to me that Paul is saying here, we need to be convinced about this statement. You know, there are things that we don't know. And as I mentioned in the first service, you know, I feel very uncomfortable about people, with people who seem to know everything. They know exactly what God is doing in the world today. They know exactly what God is doing in their lives. They are certain about the events leading up to the second coming and, and, and they've got it all sorted. I don't know if I'm just concerned or jealous, but uh, it's not an easy conversation to have, is it? When you're talking to somebody who's got it all worked out. But you know, Paul says just two verses earlier in verse 26, we do not know what we ought to pray for. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Friends, there are many things we don't know. Many things that it's difficult to be certain about. But here Paul says we need to be fully persuaded by this truth that God is on the throne. That in all things... He doesn't surround that by exemption clauses and and all kinds of uh, conditions. In the good, in the bad, and in the ugly things of life, Paul says, in all things, God is at work. When our lives are filled with divine activity, 
when we see prophecies being fulfilled, when our prayers are being answered one after another, there's a sense of God's activity, but not just then. When nothing much seems to be happening, when the heavens seem like brass and we're still waiting on answers to prayer and prophetic words, in the mundane times of life, God is at work. In the blessing times and in the hard times. In the times when we feel his presence and in the times when we don't. God is at work. And Paul says God is at work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The good. What, what is the good? I think sometimes, uh, sadly, some Christians have interpreted that to mean that, uh, you know, everything will just work out nicely. You know, it'll just be fine. You miss that on that job, you'll get a better job. Well, praise God that there are times when that happens. But, you know, we cannot read verse 28 in isolation because Paul really defines for us what God considers to be our good. He goes on to say, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the likeness of his son, that he, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. You know, God's incredible plan is this. God has always wanted a really massive family. He's wanted younger brothers and sisters for Jesus Christ. All who would bear the family resemblance. All who would increasingly, day by day, begin to look more and more like Jesus in their character, in the way they act, in, the, in their disposition. And the remarkable thing is that for every believer, that process has already begun. I have a, a pet hate for a little phrase that I haven't seen so much recently. I don't think it's because of my dislike for it, but uh, it was one of those sort of trendy bumper stickers. And, and do forgive me, don't, please don't be offended if you've got it on your car or you know, on a calendar. It was this little phrase that says, I'm not perfect, I'm only forgiven. I don't take exception to the first part, I'm not perfect. I, I lift up my hands and say that's absolutely true of me. And I totally rejoice day by day that I'm forgiven. I think what I take exception to is the word only. Because it implies that the only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that we're forgiven. I'll tell you what, so much more happened when you came to Christ. When you came to Christ, the Bible says the Holy Spirit came to live within us. God put something of his DNA within us. And a process, a miraculous process of transformation began. The theologians call it sanctification. A day-by-day -day transforming work of the Holy Spirit, whereby the Holy Spirit is transforming us into the likeness of Jesus, using the tough times as well as the good times. You know, I like to surround myself with nice, happy, pleasant people, don't you? You know, if I'm going on holiday, I, I don't go looking around for the most obnoxious person I can find and saying, would you like to come on holiday with me? No, I, I, I you know, and I, I, I'm fortunate I'm in this church and everybody, as far as I'm aware, is a lovely, wonderful, pleasant person. You can't come on holiday with me, but uh, you all certainly, from my perspective, seem very pleasant. But, you know, sometimes God puts into proximity of our lives somebody who isn't so pleasant. And maybe we're thinking, God, why is that obnoxious person come to work in the office? Why is that person 
kind of moved next door that's always complaining. I want to tell you, sometimes the obnoxious person can be used more by God in our transforming work into the likeness of Jesus than the wonderful, pleasant people around our lives. You see, friends, today it's in the good, the bad, and the ugly that God is working through our circumstances to make us more and more like Jesus. And God is passionate about that. You know, sometimes we mistake God's good for, you know, the fact that maybe God just wants to make us comfortable. Maybe he wants to just make us temporarily happy. I've got to tell you, sometimes I listen to um, TV preaching, and I get the impression that God just wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and abundantly happy here. Well, praise God for the times God blesses us in those areas. But I want to tell you today, God is not committed to Peter Clothier's comfort. He, he blesses, and sometimes he makes my life more comfortable, but he's not committed to that pri primarily. He's not even committed primarily to my temporary happiness, but he is passionately committed to changing me into the likeness of Jesus. It, it's right at the top of his agenda. And right now, I, you know, there may be many things in your life you're saying, I don't know what God is doing. I don't know why I'm going through this situation. And I can't answer that question for you, but what I can tell you is one thing that is happening right now, if you're a Christian, is happening every single day of your life is that God is seeking to shape and to mold you into the likeness of Christ. So that the very fruit of the Spirit, the very characteristics of Christ, are being manifest through your life, that you are bearing something of the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. The people looking at your life see something more of Jesus each and every day of your life. You see, that remarkable process is a process that is a miracle. I've got to say, not one of us can make ourselves like Jesus by our own willpower. It's a work of the Spirit. The Spirit works from the inside. But you know, we do have a part to play. We're not called to sit back and say, oh, Spirit of God, just carry on the work. I'm still grumpy, but you just carry on. You know, you just do what you will do. We're called to part partner and participate with the Holy Spirit. No time to give you all the references, but Peter tells us in his second letter, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. And he goes on with a string of these wonderful godly qualities. Paul writing to the church at Philippi, he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I'm so glad he didn't just stop there. He goes on to say, for it is God who works in you to will and to act for his good purpose. You see, friends, we need to make God's priority our priority. As I draw to a close this morning, I want to really ask the question, why is it so important today that we allow the Holy Spirit unresisted work within our lives to make us like Jesus? The Bible tells us one day we will see him face to face and we will be made like him perfectly, hallelujah. Every trace of sin eradicated. That day is coming. If that day is coming, why is it so important today that I am being changed into the likeness of Jesus? I tell you, there's many, many reasons. I want to just pick one. I believe the world needs to see Jesus and not just hear about Jesus. I believe the world needs to see that remarkable, miraculous metamorphosis taking place within our lives. They need to see the kindness of Jesus they need to see the love and the grace and the patience and the humility of Jesus. 
There needs to be something about our lives that causes people to sit up and say, why are you so different? I'm sure all of us have had the experience when an opportunity to share our faith comes up or somebody finds out for the first time we're a Christian and uh, they, they, they start the sentence with, I knew a Christian once. And then you wait with bated breath. You're not quite sure what's going to come next. Is it going to help or is it going to hinder? What you're really hoping they're going to say is that they were an incredible person. When they walked into the office, the very atmosphere changed. I have never met a person who took such an interest in other people's lives. I've never met a person that, you know, seemed to have so much love and so much grace and so much concern. I watched them go through a bereavement and, and I could see that it impacted them. There was a sorrow as they lost that member of their family. And yet, as I watched them close hand, I saw a peace. And even in the midst of their sorrow, there was a, there was a joy. There was something about that person. What you don't want to hear <laughs> is they were the worst hypocrite I ever met. They looked down their nose at everybody. They seemed to be judging everybody. They, you know, they were miserable. They seemed to be grumpy and they were always knocking off work early. That's what you don't want to hear. If you hear that, you think, gosh, shall I just carry on or shall I, uh, you know, no, I'm a Muslim actually. Uh, no. Um, you see, friends, the world needs to see Jesus. They need to see the reality of Jesus. I remember hearing somebody once say, our lives as Christians should pose a question and the answer is Jesus. May God grant that each of our lives here in BCC might increasingly look like Jesus. When people meet us, may they see the family resemblance. May they say, actually, I met a Christian before and I find it absolutely astounding. You seem to have some of the characteristics of the Christian that I used to know. May God grant that we increasingly look more and more like Jesus Christ. And as I do finish this morning, I want to say this. When I consider these amazing truths, I find it deeply humbling and yet exciting that the creator of the universe, the one who put the stars in space, would take the time to perform a miracle in my heart day by day. I have very little significance in this world. That's not false humility. I'm not even, I don't even have an internet presence. People say, I was trying to find you on social media. Well, they won't, unfortunately. But, um, I, you know, in one sense, I am insignificant. But I tell you what, the creator of the universe has chosen my heart to become the arena of his miraculous, beautiful, transforming work. And he is working in my life and he is working in your life today with great patience with great precision and with great passion to make you and I more like Jesus Christ. To him be all the glory. Amen. Let's bow our heads, shall we?